Welcome to the Mormons and Drugs podcast, a weekly podcast wherein I discuss the shockingly frequent intersections of Mormonism, magic, and drugs. I am Cody, the dishwasher. Well, not really a dishwasher no, right not. now because of the COVIDs, the plagues. You're not a dishwasher at all unless you want ours. <laughs> I am a history fan and you're most of the time overly ranty host. All the time. Yeah. Uh, joining me, as always, is my co-host and producer, Moth Dula. Hello. How are you doing this week? <laughs> Same as every week, Pinky. Yeah, it feels like that. <laughs> uh, normally, this is where I would say that uh, if you're into continuity and a clear timeline, that I would suggest you start back at episode one. But this is a two-part episode, so I really strongly suggest you listen to these two tangential rant episodes back-to-back. Uh, the last episode started off a new part of the podcast that, like I said, we're calling Tangential Rants, wherein I take a break from the main narrative to rant tangentially about drugs, magic, history, well, basically whatever I feel like ranting about during a given recording. And this is a continued part two, like I said. So if you're listening to the, this first, please, just for God's sake, go back and listen to the first one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So this section, uh, we'll start off with Magic Mushrooms and the Harvard Psilocybin Project. I mentioned them a little bit in the last episode, but here's where we'll, we'll finally dive into what they were. Cool. Psilocybin mushrooms uh, had been known to the indigenous peoples of Central and South America for thousands of years. However, it was not until the famous 1957 Life article by amateur mycologist and J.P. Morgan employee Gordon Wasson that the psychedelic compound made its way into the larger social zeitgeist. Just two years later, in 1959, familiar Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman, who we talked about, uh, he isolated LSD. Uh, we talked about him in the last episode. Yeah, I looked him up. I thought maybe he was Pisces. <laughs> I was kind of hoping for it, but he's not. He's a Capricorn, which, considering... Yeah, it makes more sense, I guess. <laughs> he. I wish I had the chart up again. There, he. I forgot what his ascendant was, but he did have one he had he had good stuff in there but i guess he was a scientist so he had to be a little more um what's the word uh not so artsy up in the <laughs> air well i mean okay you pisces you think of like Kurt Cobain, you know, someone okay. very emotional and just like raw. Let's not rag too hard on the on the Pisces. <laughs> okay, Pisces ascendant, but you are emotional and raw, and so I guess someone with, that was that rigorous and disciplined and obviously educated. Not that Pisces obviously can't be uh, educated, okay. but like he, you know, he. I guess when you think about scientists, you probably want to think about like Virgos or someone who likes to get in the nitty gritty details and stuff. Mm -hmm. But he was a Capricorn, so they also and somebody love who kind of remove themselves from the, from the experiment. Absolutely, kind of, okay. yeah. Which a Capricorn dispassionately totally observe. could. They're very like they're really <laughs> um, disciplined, and they they really like to have a long life plan, and they've got set goals, and they're gonna make those goals. You know, okay. so. Um, it makes more sense. Much I more wish... like Hoffman from what I knew about him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's, he, I mean, he accomplished a lot. What he did, psilocybin and, uh, mescaline, LSD. LSD? Okay. Um, a few other mescaline was way chemicals, before that. But yeah. I... Okay. But I mean, so, I mean, the guy had a lot going on and then I wish I heard, I wish I had the rest of his chart, but anyways, go on. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, the, uh, 
Where were we? Uh, yeah, so 1959. <laughs> <laughs> that same chemist, Albert Hoffman. Yeah. Uh, he isolates the chemical psilocybin as the key visionary agent of the so-called magic mushrooms of Mexico. And after preliminary studies on the new compound uh, suggested similar physiological responses to that of LSD and mescaline, uh, Sando Laboratories, the place he worked for. Sando? Uh, S-A-N-D-O-Z. I, oh. I'm pronouncing it Sando's. It might be Sando's. Okay. Um, they similarly began shipping the new compound around the world for its potential use in psychotherapy. And you uh, get to hallucinate. <laughs> and you get to hallucinate. With suggested notes of like, take this. Take it. Take it. It's fun. Put an eye mask on. <laughs> listen to some music, some jazz. Yeah. Lay on your bed. Like I should have been a scientist. I know. <laughs> like this was this was the sweet spot for being a psychologist. Fuck podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so by August of 1960, the um, now infamous psychologist Timothy Leary, who we also mentioned in last week's episode, the but, bike ride. Yeah. No, that was Albert Hoffman. Oh. Uh, oh. Okay. Timothy Leary was uh, ran the Harvard Psilocybin Project. I okay. mentioned him a little bit last yeah. week. Yeah, no, you did. And, you know, we record things and then there's time goes on in life and yeah. I forget everything we talk about. So, <laughs> And I, I go off on little side tangents too. You often, do. So and there's just so many to... people. But, like, my good, my, my not good, my bad memory should be beneficial here <laughs> for all of those who don't remember. I'm just jumping in. Yeah. So Timothy Leary uh, had made his way to Mexico and had his own psychedelic experience with the magic mushrooms of Oaxaca. And this was after he had read the the Life article from Gordon Wasson that kind of gave him the idea to go fun- track these down. And we uh, don't know what variety they had in Oaxaca, do you? Uh, they weren't Cubensis. Yeah, they are Cubensis. Oh, okay. That's like the, um, I th- think... There's a few varieties around Oaxaca, but there is a strain of Cubensis specific to Oaxaca. Of course. Um, And that's what he... And that's what he had, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, Leary would later say of his own experience that he, quote, learned more about his brain and its possibilities, more about psychology in five hours after taking these mushrooms than in the preceding 15 years of studying and doing research in psychology, unquote. Now, granted, he was a psychologist, right. so he could probably pull a lot more out of the exactly. experience than okay, your I was average just about person. To say that. I was um, <laughs> that's also worth noting is that those fifteen years really helped prime him for the, uh, soaking as much up as he could. Absolutely. But anyway, um, upon returning to the states, Leary and his he- fellow Harvard uh, colleagues, including Aldous Huxley, uh, Richard Alpert, who later became Ram Dass, like I mentioned, mm-hmm. um, and Ralph Metzner, we should read some of his poetry. But anyways, go. It is beautiful, actually. I, his, Just for those who like Ramdas, who's Ramdas? Uh, the uh, Be Here Now is like the big book everybody will, yeah, will know. Which he has a few I other ones. It. Polishing the Mirror was really good. That's the one he wrote after he had a stroke. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, anyway, uh, they all these guys co-founded the Harvard Psilocybin Project, much like the Harvard Aesthetics who were running around a generation prior that we talked about last episode, this group aimed to further the development and potential for psychedelics as psychoanalytical and therapeutic tools and openly conducted experiments with staff and alumni until 1962 when the project was shut down due to ethical concerns. So 59 to 62? Uh, from From August of... Around August of 1960 to, oh. I believe, late 1962. So just about, two. just okay. over two years, I okay. think. This scandal over ethical concerns and shutting down uh, the Harvard Psilocybin Project, Timothy Leary and Alpert were both fired from their positions at Harvard as well. 
and um, this whole scandal ended Leary and Alpert's professional careers, like completely, completely. Oh, that's awful. Um, and they had been like renowned psychotherapists before then. They were like, like Alpert was teaching at Harvard and was a really well respected psychoanalyst. Um, okay, but you don't know more about like the details of like what? Oh, there's tons. You could read okay. about this and okay, there's okay. So if someone of... wanted to look into it and. Yeah, I can ask you later. Timothy Leary's practice. book is good. Ramdas, uh, if you go to his podcast, I think it's ramdas.org. Some of the first few episodes is are like clips of his old lectures when okay. he just came back from India and was like, "Hey, this is who I am and who I was." And he talks all about his career oh, as a, a Harvard um, psychologist and like the events that led up to his firing. Okay. Um, so if you want to just listen to it, that's a good source too. Okay. Do you think they regret that at all, or not at all? Uh, maybe Leary um, at towards the end of his career regretted how he went about doing something no i meant harvard oh harvard <laughs> no i don't think they ever looked back uh maybe now that's psychedelics are kind of um being going through a renaissance a cool again yeah um maybe but i don't think anybody really loses much sleep over that yeah okay Leary later commented on the project's brief success uh, in his 1964 paper so two years after he got fired the religious experience its production and interpretation Quote, we have arranged transcended experiences for over 1,000 persons from all walks of life, including 69 full-time religious professionals, about half of whom profess the Christian or Jewish faith and about half of whom belong to Eastern religions. Included in this roster are two college deans, a divinity college president, three university chaplains, an executive of a religious foundation, a prominent religious editor, and several distinguished religious philosophers. At this point, it is conservative to state that over 75% of these subjects report intense mystico-religious responses, and considerably more than half claim that they have had the deepest spiritual experience of their life, unquote. So in just over two years, they, they dosed over a thousand people, many of whom were working professionals in and around the Harvard area. So all generally well-respected um, productive members of their community we should say and uh, i like that they did it looks like almost yeah so multi multi-disciplinary there's a bunch of religions that are again this kind of speaks to i'll get to this at the end but yeah. it it speaks to the potential for these drugs to kind of uh, mitigate a lot of religious strife mm. And of that thousand people, around ten percent of them were like working religious professionals, so like right. university chaplains and what did it say, divinity college presidents, like people that knew what a religious experience was, what to expect, and still most of them had the deepest experience they've ever had uh, spiritually. So during this relatively short life of the Harvard Psilocybin Project, the group's largest contribution to the field, in my opinion, involved popularizing and clarifying the precise variables which reliably led to mystical experiences, namely dose, set, and setting. Remember, a lot of these chemicals can do a lot of different things to, uh, in, in terms of like dose response. So getting these variables, dose, set, and setting, is what helps you hone in on a religious experience instead of just like an ecstatic or recreational one okay due to these pioneering individuals self-experimentation experienced psychonauts can now reliably dial in on specific types of experiences by paying special care to the preparation and execution of these factors 
In 2011, Dr. James Fadiman provided a much-needed overhaul and re-examination of these variables. Dr. Fadiman's updated list was recently published in Dr. Richard Miller's Psychedelic Medicine and includes the following. I'm going to read this whole thing and just kind of break it down because it's, it's really well thought out and this is going to become really important in analyzing the things the Mormons are doing in the rest of the podcast. Number one is set or mental attitude or intention. And this is like, what, what type of experience is the individual attempting to elicit and for what reason? Therapeutically, entheogenically, recreationally, and the like, you know, all have their given merits and positive benefits. But often one of the most overlooked aspect of taking a psychedelic substance is just deciding what one really wants to happen afterward. Uh, the intention is especially important during the difficult or bad trips in that the proper mindset can help bring one back to a desired state of consciousness. Okay. Um, so it, it acts as it. like an anchor for, you know, this is what I want and where I should be as opposed to where I'm drifting off to. Okay. Number two, setting or landscapes and soundscapes. Is the environment in which one conducts a psychedelic or entheogenic session conducive to the intention of that session? You know, taking a psychedelic in nature versus at a heavy metal concert can induce wildly different reactions in the same person, regardless of how strong that person's intention might be. Just a bit. Just a bit. Just a, just a wee. Um, <laughs> so, the, you know, the choice of ambient sound and music, or even a lack thereof, can have a profound effect on an experience. Yeah. Uh, in Dr. Richard Miller's book, The Psychedelic Medicine, which I'm pulling a lot of this from, uh, Dr. Fadiman goes even further, quote, Take it in as safe and comfortable a setting as possible, where you can lie down and listen to music, even put on an eye mask so that you can investigate the universe from the inside. I One love of the that part. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and again, the, pay attention to this because when we get to the Mormons in the next like three or four episodes, um, they're shutting out the light and mm -hmm. controlling the soundscapes. And they, like they knew what these variables were. They were isolating them and okay. utilizing them. So pay attention to this. Yeah, <laughs> Even okay. if they didn't have the verbiage for this or like explicit explanation of what they were doing, they still noticed a reaction when they did this. When they did these certain things, yes. even though, or do you think Joseph knew and just had oh, the checklist sure. off? Okay. So he just had the checklist in his head. He had a, clearly someone trained him on how to use this. And oh, okay. through his own self-experimentation, as we'll see, mm -hmm. he started in small groups and then slowly started doing it in larger and larger groups, okay. more and more regularly. And he really got down a system of like, this is how I get most of you to see what I want you to see. Interesting. Anyway, back to the quote from Fadiman. Yeah. Uh, one of the wonderful things we have technologically are headphones, which block out ambient noise. Uh, almost everyone, including indigenous people, find music or that singing music uh, to be a very important part of the psychedelic experience, unquote. So like I said, um, later when we get to the part where they're shutting, they're closing up the windows and mm -hmm. shutting out all the light and they're singing hymns and they're like, this is what they're doing. Yeah. Moving on. Number three, sitter, your psychedelic safari guide. <laughs> An experienced, trained, and ethically minded person that can act as a intention keeper, so to speak, or at times an outright safety net. During psychedelic sessions, what may appear to the observer as symptoms of psychosis, this psychomimetic effect that we mentioned last week, um, may prove to be for the experiencer a deeply spiritual or therapeutic moment, you know, but objectively it looks like they're just going a little insane. Mm -hmm. Having someone around who is familiar with the psychedelic terrain and its many incarnations can be of immense benefit. 
Likewise, an inexperienced or unempathetic sitter can just as often lead to a psychologically devastating session for participants. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's all like that, just like the first note, bringing it back, like if they're if they're drifting off from their intent, mm-hmm. helping bring them back and be more of an anchor mm-hmm. to their mission. And this is the problem I have, uh, like a, towards the end that I mentioned, this is the problem I have with a lot of people that try and be guides yeah. today they get over enthusiastic they don't really have the training or really education to do this yeah safely uh-huh. and they just want to share the experience which i totally understand yeah the enthusiasm for um, that but they end up doing in my opinion more damage than good right it's um, definitely possible and just because you're friends afterwards doesn't mean that you know what you did was okay yeah <laughs> so uh you know Guide or sitter, the, the person assisting should be there to keep the participants safe and provide compassionate support during difficult periods. So choose guides or sitters with extreme care. This is like if you're going to make a decision to manipulate these variables for a session, this is the one that's like you really got to be on point and know who you're asking to guide you. I agree. The guide and the setting, I think, are the two tops for me. Having ambient noise, just no noise. I don't know. It, it can fine. lack of noise can be just as important as right. what noise to use. Yeah. Um, but but where definitely you are having a having somebody you. around who knows what's going on. Yeah, is I feel like that's huge. Yeah. Uh, four, the fourth variable is substance. Just what are you taking and how much? Oh, that's huge as well. <laughs> <laughs> All of these are really important. I know, I know, but <laughs> so um, the popular slogan "Just Say No," which is K N O W instead mm-hmm. of N O. Just Say No beautifully encapsulates this concept. So, so great. It's a nice spin on the Nancy Reagan bullshit. Yeah, which is just, I'm sorry. I am, ah, like it just, (laughs) this is so much better. I just constantly Mm -hmm. am preaching to the girls, like, knowledge is power. Yeah. Knowledge is bloody power. Take that power by knowing exactly what substance you intend to take. Yeah, and and all of the details with it. knowing how much, you know, you like Knowing who's going to be there, knowing who's going to be there, knowing where you're going to be, knowing what you're intending to do, Mm -hmm. you know, all of these. Yes. No, no, no. No, if you even want to. Yeah. And in terms of what you're taking, uh, how much you should be taking. Oh, yeah. You know, don't just take mystery powder and be like, that looks like enough. Um, (laughs) Please don't do that. Some of the plants uh, that I describe in my book and that we'll probably highlight later in the podcast. Uh, have a very short gap between pleasant intoxication and fatal overdose. <laughs> so, you know, the necessary education and proper identification of psychedelic substances are, again, of the utmost importance when designing a session. Um, you have to really hone in these variables. Hmm. Number five is the session itself, the duration of mind alteration. Depending on the particular substance and delivery method, psychedelic sessions can last anywhere from a couple of minutes on up to a couple of days. So again, just say no. How much and what are you taking? Number six, life group, supportive community. After a psychedelic session, does the community around the direct experiencer support, appreciate, and empathize with the mystical or spiritual experience? This variable is often of the utmost importance during difficult sessions or what have been traditionally mislabeled as so-called bad trips. Likewise, a supportive community can be just as important after a deeply transformative or positive experience, as they can help one properly integrate that experience directly into long-lasting life changes. 
So while all of these variables have been recognized and applied long prior to the, psilocybin, the Harvard Psilocybin Project and Dr. Fadman's later expansion, that group of academics undoubtedly popularized the concept and helped uh, slowly slip them into the modern public consciousness uh, and gave people a vocabulary for what they were already noticing. Uh, once all these factors have been appropriately considered, the statistical reliability of psychedelic substances to induce mystical states is several orders of magnitude greater than any other method currently known to either science or mysticism, frankly. Once more, this quality of psychedelic substances is most pronounced in choreographed group settings. So moving on to choreographed group settings. Okay. Which is kind <laughs> of what we you discuss with Mormons, right? Uh, it's it's what A I bit. hone in on whenever I'm analyzing the history. Is okay. like. Yes, I'll speculate here and there with like, hey, this happened and this guy saw this and this might have been a session because we know he took something, but I don't really spend a whole lot of time on it because, you know, individuals can do this on their own too. I'm, I completely appreciate that. What is striking to me is when A, someone says, hey, tomorrow you're going to see this, but let me give you something to eat and drink first. Or someone does this to a group and the entire group shares a visionary experience, which is really hard to do in groups without a, a, an entheogenic agent. Mm -hmm. You add that in and you have a, a talented mesmerist or a hypnotist like Joe was, mm -hmm. he can get a room to see what he wants them to see. Suddenly a miraculous event is completely explainable by the sacramental wine, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, especially when people want to see it so very bad. So this gets us to uh, Walter Pank and the Miracle at Marsh Chapel. Pank. One particular experiment conducted at, by the Harvard Psilocybin Project in 1962 towards the end of, like, right before they got shut down. Okay. Uh, what later became known as the Miracle at Marsh Chapel wonderfully illustrates the proper execution of the variables I just discussed. Also known as the Good Friday Experiment, due to the date upon which the observation took place, the double-blind study was designed by Harvard theology graduate Walter Pank under the supervision of Timothy Leary and the Harvard Psilocybin Project. Seeking a reliable catalyst for devoted theology students that were wishing to have their own religious experience, Pank was attempting to evaluate the merits of psilocybin, uh, in particular as an entheogenic agent. Twenty volunteers from Harvard Divinity School were divided into two test groups. The control group was given a large dose of niacin to act as an active uh, placebo, which would mimic the onset symptoms of psilocybin. Uh, you just get flushed and have an ups upset tummy. Okay. Everybody that was coming into this experiment knew that they could possibly be given a drug that would make them see things, and they. This was to, as Dr. Rick Doblin noted uh, in his follow-up study to this, quote, this was done in order to potentiate suggestion in control subjects, all of whom knew that psilocybin produced various somatic effects, but none of whom had ever had a psilocybin or any related substance before that experiment. Uh, it was just a way of mitigating anticipation. They knew that's what you would expect, but they at least wanted to get to the experience before people started, started to figure out who had yeah. what. Um, started to be clear who was really going to start seeing things. Yeah. And this second group of 10 divinity students uh, were given 30 milligrams of psilocybin. Despite the attempts at a double-blind study, uh, very shortly after the first hour, it became readily apparent who was in the control group and who had been administered psilocybin. Uh, the volunteers which had been given the niacin were allowed to go home, although several chose to stay and assist with the experiment. Um, and this is something that still plagues psychedelic 
uh, research today. It's really hard to get a double blind study because it's so easy to tell when you've had it and when you haven't. The observations took place at the beautiful Marsh Chapel in Boston, during which a two and a half hour sermon was given by the famous Reverend Howard Thurman over the uh, church's audio system. Okay, so so they're just hearing this voice, this sermon over Mm -hmm. the speakers surrounded by stained glass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the participants spent their time surrounded by these like striking stained glass depictions of Christian iconography, while this Thurman sermon was fed through the church's sound system. So again, the soundscapes and and landscapes. Okay. And um, most, of, I'm guessing, all of these people were Christian or Catholic. Yeah, or... they were they were all uh, Harvard Divinity College students, so they were all like learning to become probably Catholic or or, or Protestant. Okay, just wanted to make sure there wasn't someone who was. Buddhist sitting in there and just being like, this is... <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> no. Um, uh, other than their previous interest in theology as a field of study and like Christian theology, the volunteers were not particularly primed psychologically prior to this study, although they were encouraged during the study to pray and sing hymns. So the, the substance was expertly administered by trained psychotherapists. Okay. The set or intention of the participants was specifically primed to have a religious experience. Yes, very the clear. Setting in which the experiment took place was highly conducive to initiating religious experiences, mm-hmm. most most especially among Christian participants. Right, for those individuals, yeah. Um, the guides and support group were all extremely empathetic and like-minded pursuers of higher states of consciousness and the divine. So taking note that they were all graduate-level theology students, it's particularly worth mentioning that each and every volunteer who was administered psilocybin, went on to have one of the most meaningful and profound religious experiences of their lives. Contrasting those results with the control group, of which only one participant admitted to reaching any kind of mystical state, and one begins to appreciate the statistical reliability of of psychedelic substances, especially while in groups. Mm -hmm. You have 10% of the control group that experienced a religious experience, but not like anything profound because they could just reach that on the natch, which right. is about how many people in the population can do that. Right. And then you have the other, the psilocybin group, where 100% of them experience a visionary religious experience, uh, one of the most meaningful of their lives. That's that's the statistical reliability right there. It's like, I challenge anyone to find anything else that has that kind of reliability in inducing these experiences. So one of the participants that received a dose of psilocybin uh, was renowned comparative religious scholar uh, Houston Smith, who later said of the miracle at Marsh Chapel, quote, The experiment was powerful for me, and it left a permanent mark on my experienced worldview. For as long as I can remember, I have believed in God, and I have experienced his presence both within the world and when the world was transcendentally eclipsed. But until the Good Friday experiment, I had no direct personal encounter with God of the sort that the Bhakti Yogas, Pentecostals, and born-again Christians describe. The Good Friday experiment changed that, unquote. Houston Smith later expounded upon his experiences by highlighting the important delineation between a religious experience and living a religious life. Uh, it's by integrating such experiences into daily life that truly beneficial transformations are potentiated. So almost two years after the experiment at Marsh Chapel, uh, Walter Pank, the guy who designed it, finally allowed himself to experience the power of psychedelics firsthand while under the effects of LSD. Wait, during... he hadn't used it no. when he did the Good Friday? At the time, he had not had LSD, no. Oh, um, okay. 
I, ju- I just assumed because he was, you know, he had Leary there. and To my knowledge, he was one of the few that was part of the group that was helping design experiments that hadn't had it themselves. And it was because he wanted to remain objective. Okay, cool. And, and two years after this was, the project was shut down, uh, while in Germany in Gotten, Gottingen, Gottingen, I'm not, I don't speak German, I'm sorry. Ooh, it was flawless. I couldn't. It was it, my perfect pronunciation yes, of that I, German. I couldn't city. Yes. I, I almost thought that I was in Germany. I'm glad you were impressed. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> so, uh, Pank's friend and supportive colleague, Dr. William Richards, who wrote that book, uh, Psychedelic Medicine, that I keep pulling from, mm-hmm. uh, they were in Germany together, and Pank was taking LSD. Okay. Um, he was like, "Finally, let's do this. I've seen what what goes down." Yeah. Cool. And so uh, Richards described Pank's very enthusiastic first uh, LSD session with, quote, his ecstatic shouts still rang in my ears. <laughs> oh, God, I never could have imagined. Wow, fantastic. Man, this is great. I never would have thought. Joy, blessing, tenderness. Oh, Bill, this is great. <laughs> Unquote. I, I use this particular quote because mm-hmm. uh, later uh, there's a few scenes where like there's Mormons that mm-hmm. are clearly having an ecstatic oh, experience really? and their their language is almost 100% the same. Fascinating. In particular, Martin Harris, who we're going to talk about, there's a there's one scene when he sees the plates where he's just like, oh God, mine eyes have been held, it is enough. <laughs> and he's just like freaking out. Um, Aww, so. And so even religiously inclined people, yeah. when they have this experience, it's like, it's so profound and so meaningful and so deep that you're just like... You don't have words for it. it, it oh, I, I can only imagine because they just, I don't know, <laughs> have they believe in so much, which I envy, but <laughs> I don't. But that sounds nice. Yeah. And uh, to reiterate, you know, a theology graduate of Harvard Divinity School who directed the observations at Good Friday, it's, yeah, it's important to note here just how unexpectedly profound these sessions have proved to be. I'm glad he had a good time. Uh, once again psychedelic substances are notoriously hard to categorize as they have the ability to induce a wide variety of responses in order to begin quantifying the mystical experience once these variables have been applied pank developed nine originally eight categories which could then be used to evaluate subjective experiences okay this checklist was originally rated individually on a scale from one to five based on the profundity experienced this one is like normal quote unquote consciousness five being that oh god in his uh he he clearly described these categories in a 1967 article so this was uh three years after he he got to experience lsd wow and this is in the article the contribution of psychology of religion to the therapeutic use of psychedelic substances Hmm. this is a bit long and dry like the title would suggest (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but bear with me for a moment as this is going to again prove highly significant in the narrative episodes coming up very soon So in Pank's own words, I'm just pulling directly from him. Cool. One, unity. Quote, the essential elements of internal unity are loss of usual sense impressions and the loss of self without becoming unconscious. The multiplicity of usual external and internal sense impressions, including time and space, are the empirical ego or unusual sense of individuality fade or melt away while consciousness remains. In the most complete experience, this consciousness is a pure awareness beyond empirical content with no external or internal distinctions. That very word, that's the white light. So when 
you hear of uh, people taking psychedelics and it just turns into a white light for hours and hours and hours. And But it's an experience of some kind. Some p- people describe it as the download. Okay. Where it's kind of matrix-like. It's beyond experience. You're you're just downloading, like Leary said, years of information in just a few hours. You are dissolving, but there's but you are still part to observe. That's right, you paradox. are still part of everything, but you aren't so individual. You aren't a individual at all okay. anymore. But there is something there that remains to experience that that which is which your your consciousness, which is individual, to experience all the. Melting away into nothing. (laughs) It gets very, yeah. Turtles all the way down. (laughs) Number two, the transcendence of time and space. This is one that will come up again and again. Uh, I think last week we talked uh, about that article from Joy of the Toppers where the Mormon guy was like, the most, the biggest thing I noticed about this as a chemist was that uh, time and space were just uh, not a thing anymore. which is fascinating and it will continue to come up uh quote transcendence of space means that a person loses his usual orientation as to where he is during the experience in terms of the usual three-dimensional perception of his environment experiences of timelessness and spacelessness may also be described as an experience of eternity or infinity again gonna keep coming up uh there is no time there is no time. There is no space even. It's just you are complete oneness with God or the universe or whatever you want to describe that yeah. as. Three, a deeply felt positive mood. <laughs> the, oh, God, Bill. <laughs> uh, the the most universal element uh, and therefore the ones which are most essential in the definition of this category are joy, blessedness, and peace. Uh, the unique character in relation to the mystical experience is that their intensity marks them as being at the highest levels of human experience of these feelings, and they are valued highly by the experiencers. Tears may be associated with, with any of these elements because of the overpowering nature of the experience. These feelings may occur at the peak of the experience or during the ecstatic afterglow when the peak has passed, but its effects and memory are still quite vivid and intense. This is me. I cry a fucking lot during these experiences, uh, and I, I have so many feels. You have so many good so feels. Many feels. Oh, even like good and bad. Everything's just so intense. I I just like weep a lot. Aww. Four, a sense of sacredness. Quote: The basic characteristic of sacredness is a non-rational, intuitive, hushed, palpitant response of awe and wonder in the presence of inspiring realities. No religious beliefs or traditional theological terminology need necessarily be involved, even though a sense of reverence or a feeling that what is experienced is holy or divine may be included, unquote. So you, don't, you can be an atheist, and still you come away with a sense of sacredness about these, these compounds and these experiences. Right. Because there is Which no... Which is interesting. Yeah. Well, there's no, like, man coming down from the sky. It's just unity. Mm-hmm. So even if you're not experiencing a Christian God, right. you're experiencing what you think of as God. So it could be just the becoming one with the universe exactly. or like the planetary cycle right. or whatever it is to you right. and a sense of sacredness about that experience. Right. It individualizes it for you due to its download of you, I guess. Yeah. It's downloading you as much as you're downloading it. Oh, fuck, man. <laughs> Uh, Number five is objectivity and reality. This category has two interrelated elements. 
One, insightful knowledge or illumination felt at an intuitive, non-rational level gained by direct experience. That's a download. Like it just, no, nobody's telling you information. You're just, it's just Going, coming. Yeah, it's, you're just experiencing it. Um, and that moment in the Matrix when they're like, I need to fly a helicopter. And they just, Grr! and they know that's that's the download that they're they're describing. Okay. Number two is the authoritativeness of the experience or the certainty that such knowledge is truly real in contrast to the feeling that the experience is a subjective delusion. These two elements are connected because the knowledge through the experience of ultimate reality in the sense of being able to know and see what is really real carries its own sense of certainty. Uh, This is again going to become very important with the Mormons Mm -hmm. because they come out of these experiences, uh, especially Joseph. It was like, I have just literally, I'm speaking the word of God. And everyone around him is like just as convinced of that. And I'm not saying all the time. Of course, he did that all the time, specifically during these like uh, religious sacraments that he would hold in the early days of the church. Uh, Number six is paradoxicality, which is just a fun word. Paradoxicality. (laughs) Quote, in the experience of internal unity, there is a loss of all empirical content in an empty unity, which is at the same time full and complete. This loss includes the loss of the sense of self and dissolution of individuality, yet something individual remains to experience the unity. We kind of just said that, yeah. Yeah, it, it ties into one of the earlier points, but that the paradox of the experience itself is is always kind of one of those things that's constantly mentioned. Yeah, okay. Uh, seven, alleged ineffability. In spite of attempts to tell or write about the mystical experience, mystics insist that words fail to describe it adequately or that the experience is beyond words. I love that one of the rules is like, can't explain it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and we'll get... It's, I have no idea how far it'll be, but it, like three or four years into the church, Joseph uh, and one of his guys in a state of vision uh, come up with the cosmology for Mormon heaven, that like three-tiered heaven that Mormons are famous for, and like you get your own planet and all that stuff. Oh, you're you're telling me he was in the state of uh, some influence? Oh. I never would have guessed it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I have I have a firsthand account of somebody describing what his visionary state looked like, and it's clearly he was on something. And but anyway, and this really misogynist and <laughs> racist. And oh, sorry. Yes, those things as well. Um, but he, uh, one of the things he said about that those tears of heaven is like, if you could even see the lowest tier of heaven, people would kill themselves just to get there, because you're guaranteed a spot essentially. Um, I I don't. <laughs> it's don't yeah don't. I don't want don't. to get there. <laughs> but the, it sounds the, horrible for a woman. The idea that the glories of heaven were so ineffable that like if you were to just get a glimpse of this, you would you would want to kill yourself to get there. Is how much he's saying. Like I can't even. This is how much I can't describe yeah. it. And it again, this will come up constantly through the narrative episodes. Eight, transiency. Transiency refers to the duration and means of temporariness of the mystical experience in contrast to the relative permanence of the level of usual experience. There is a transient appearance of the special and unusual levels or dimensions of consciousness which are defined by our topology, with the eventual disappearance and return to the more usual. The characteristic of transiency indicates that the mystical state of consciousness is not sustained indefinitely, so you eventually always come back. Reassuring. <laughs> it is actually very reassuring oh, no, yeah. as a sitter to like if somebody's having a hard time, it's 
very nice sometimes to be like this it will end yeah this is <laughs> not yeah. forever i i've been there um on both sides number nine uh finally the last one we're almost over this i promise <laughs> Uh, persisting positive changes in attitude and or behavior. Because our topology is of a healthful, life-enhancing mysticism, this category describes positive, lasting effects, which are the result of the experience. These changes are divided into four groups. One, toward the self. Two, toward others. Three, towards life. And four, towards the mystical experience itself. So when I spoke of Fred M. Smith last week, and I mentioned his categorical breakdown of ecstatic states, uh, this checklist that I just gave you is the one I said closely resembled his. So okay. Fred M. Smith gave a, a categorical breakdown of ecstatic states almost 50 years before this. Did he have 10 or 9? Was... Uh, I think he had 11. I don't remember. Sorry. <laughs> he had about as many. He did? Okay. Close to a dozen. But it was very close to this, and he described some of the same things. Okay. Yeah, I, I feel like that bears reiteration. I, <laughs> again, Fred M. Smith, a... Uh, 40 years before Pank created this list, Fred M. Smith provided a very similar categorization in 1918. So a president prophet of the RLDS branch of Mormonism, who is, who is supplying the Harvard aesthetics who with peyote. Who also studied psychology. Who was a psychologist himself and a quiet advocate of peyote usage, provided a very prescient observer to, to psychic and entheogenic states of consciousness, one which openly he openly attributed to his use of peyote as a, a, psych a psychologist and religious person. Like, why isn't this not mentioned as part of like <laughs> psychedelic history is beyond me. So approximately 25 years after the Good Friday experiment was conducted, uh, Dr. Rick Doblin published the first long-term follow-up study, which critically analyzed the experiment and the positive lifelong effects uh, it had on its participants. I love follow-up studies. <laughs> yes. I love them. And the reason I, I, I brought up this one is because this study, the Miracle at Marsh Chapel, has had several long-term follow-up studies <sighs> and Wonderful. has inspired other long-term follow-up studies with psychedelics just, that are just as useful. Uh, like, how can you do a study without exactly following up? Like, ah, uh, just answer so many of my questions. <laughs> uh, so in, in Doblin's follow-up, he discovered that uh, over a quarter of a century later, nine out of 10 participants consistently rated the experience as one of the most significant and meaningful spiritual moments of their lives. Similarly, nine out of 10 participants reported long-lasting positive changes. The 10th participant simply refused to be questioned again, so it's unknown what he thought of the experiment. Right. But 90 to 100% yeah. <laughs> statistics. So the other one, well. that one, doesn't really count, it, and he could have, I guess... At the low end, 90% of these yeah. participants, yeah. 25 years later, still thought of it. At the high end, 100. So again, find me any kind of catalyst with that kind of reliability, and I will, I will throw this theory out the window. Doblin further details these positive changes with... Quote, experimental subjects wrote that the experience helped them to resolve career decisions, recognize the arbitrariness of ego boundaries, increase the depth of faith, increase their appreciation of eternal life, deepen their sense and meaning of Christ, and heighten their sense of joy and beauty. No positive persisting changes were reported by the control group in the open-ended section of this follow-up questionnaire. So he went back to the, the people who were given niacin even and gave them the same questionnaire, and none of them reported. So the one Did guy... Pink is the one that followed up? No, this is Rick Doblin who did the follow-up. Okay, sorry. And I'm sure uh, you said that. That one guy in the control group that had a mystical experience, uh -huh. 25 years later, it was not a meaningful thing that he ever remembered. Huh. 
is what this says. So not only is the reliability there for having it, but like how profound that experience is, is can't really categorize that. Yeah. While there were some issues with the original study that Doblin mentioned, such as like Pink's failure to report there was an administration of a tranquilizer to one of the participants, um, or that most of them had brief periods of psychological distress, the theoretical groundwork had been laid for further experimentation. Mm -hmm. And so years later, in 2006, researchers at John Hopkins redesigned the Good Friday experiment under much stricter conditions and a much more clinical setting. So they did this in a hospital with clinicians and stuff okay uh not stained glass yeah. reliefs and yeah <laughs> and that's um which i don't know i mean i get it but and for uh, you'll get we'll get to why they were they were doing um things like end of life studies so like okay. doing this in a hospital was probably oh, yeah. a good thing yes. for some of these yeah, sessions that would be a safety net they eventually concluded that when administered under appropriate conditions, psilocybin does indeed initiate deeply profound and positive spiritual changes, lasting at least 14 months after the session. So they, in 2006, they did this, and then they did a 14-month follow-up. Cool. So this Miracle at Marsh Chapel has been duplicated, mm -hmm. and two follow-up studies have been done on both experiments, coming up with the same results. Nice. Good science. Yeah. Good science. This same group at John Hopkins once more replicated the experiment to the same effect in 2011 while testing various dose-related responses with psilocybin. Really? Three! It's been replicated three times under yeah. scientific conditions. And were those... Good science. Were those end-of-life studies too, or are those just religious, or what? This was just potentiating religious experiments. Okay. It's all that. Okay. Yeah. The, the, the I believe the end-of-life studies were a different... Yeah. Okay. Came up, again, came up with the same, same. result. Yeah. Okay. Um, so this is not just hippie hyperbole. I'm not just like spouting out, and like, drugs are cool, man. Yeah. Like, this is good science. The foundation of relatively new organizations like MAPS, uh, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, ICERS, the International Center for Ethnobotanical Education, Research, and Service, and the Beckley Foundation, all spearheading this field of study. New research is coming out every day, and our society today must attempt to shed the decades of deeply instilled cognitive biases uh, that surround entheogenic substances and attempt to absorb this new data with open and rational minds. I'm talking to you Mormons that are listening to this. <laughs> Addressing psychedelic myths and criticisms. We're just going to dive into this for those people. And there, this is still the same. What are you reading now? I'm going to wrap things up. Uh, we're just going to quickly address some uh, specifically for people that might still be on the fence. Like, I don't know about this stuff. Okay. So this is for you on the fence. Mm-hmm. There are a number of socially indoctrinated fallacies arguing against entheogenic or psychedelic compounds and their legal use, most especially in the deeply religious communities. This irrationality is a direct product of fear-mongering campaigns that have been circulating since the turn of the 20th century and further exacerbated during the modern drug wars. Regardless of uh, commonplace opinions today, Former United States President Richard Nixon's initiation of the war on drugs was not instituted as a result of medical concerns for the American populace, but so that Nixon and his ilk could socially control and isolate what he deemed to be political rivals, uh, most importantly, black, Jewish, and hippie communities, uh, pe basically people who wouldn't vote for him. <laughs> This is a, because Nixon loved to record everything, what I'm about to give you is a direct quote from, from President Nixon, which was recorded by himself and transcribed in the White House. <laughs> quote, 
Uh, uh, you're going to do the voice? Uh, yes, I'll, I'll do a Nixon voice. We'll see how well this goes. <clears throat> you know, it's a funny thing. Every one of the bastards out there for legalizing marijuana is Jewish. What the Christ is the matter with the Jews, Bob? What is the matter with them? I suppose it's because most of them are psychiatrists. You know, there's so many. All the greatest psychiatrists are Jewish. By God, we're going to hit this marijuana thing, and I want to hit it square in the push. <laughs> Unquote. Uh-huh. Meaning the face. The puss is a, that was a old-timey term Oh, okay. I was going to say. We, he does, he's not going to punch you in the vagina. Oh, this was not I, a, I was going to say him and him and Trump got something in common. <laughs> no, this was not a pussy grabbing uh, combo. All right. There was uh, so many other things to <laughs> say was wrong there. Yeah, so many, so many. I love, I love just hearing Nixon scream about the Jews. Though, oh my! If you ever had a question about his uh, ra- integrity mm-hmm. his, and his racial uh, inclinations, uh, it clarifies it. Yeah, there we. Yeah. So White White House aide and Watergate co-conspirator uh, John Ehrlichman asserts that Nixon's paranoid and racially charged vitriol targeted those in the black, Jewish, and hippie communities particularly, like I had mentioned. Shocking, no. Uh, In a 1994 interview, Ehrlichman went so far as to say, quote, We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Unquote. Gross. <sighs> so gross, I can't even... It's ineffable. It immediately makes me think of... Uh, I think her name was Lucy... So the girl we talked about oh, in the last yeah. episode the, was like catatonic and, yeah. and nonverbal yeah. and within just a few sessions was leading uh, tour groups through the like the amount of people that could have been helped by this <gasps> and instead the amount of people that were hurt by yeah. this. And very intentionally hurt. These are crimes that like, I'm not. I'm not a violent person, but these are crimes that I. I literally think people should be hung for. Like you <laughs> feel so strongly about this, and it kills me that kids, like kids, are not getting. Yeah, kids and people who are dying aren't getting help. Yeah, it is infuriating, and it's because he one guy wanted to politically control his rivals. So, uh, it is only after realizing that the world was sold a metaphorical load of garbage that we can begin to move forward in an educated and ethically minded way. Therefore, let us dispassionately address some of the most common complaints against the use of psychedelic substances. For example, uh, one might attempt to argue that if endogenous methods uh, for reaching altered states exist, that there should be no need for the illegal substances in order to achieve those modes of consciousness. Alternately, that somehow these substances just sound too good to be true. A decadent or cheap thrill that must pale in comparison to the more natural endogenous methods. But uh, these groundless assumptions were very easily dispelled by Dr. Rick Doblin in his follow-up study when he said, quote, The long-term follow-up interviews cast considerable doubt on the assertion that mystical experiences catalyzed by drugs are in any way inferior to non-drug mystical experiences in both their immediate content and long-term positive effects, unquote. I would, in fact, even say, go further to say they... uh, Have more of an impact? More of an impact. He even, he wrote a whole follow-up study about how they had more of an impact. 
but most of the world has no issue with ingesting beneficial substances whenever they experience a physical or mental issue, so long as it came from a person in a lab coat generally. When one takes into account the vast research uh, that has already been done and with which continues to roll out on a weekly basis, it becomes very clear that the only difference between psychedelics and a substance such as aspirin is just a lack of education and your choice of drug dealer. Going to a pharmacy or, you know, your buddy down the street. Yeah. <laughs> this is really the only difference I see. Due to the statistical reliability of entheogenic substances to achieve profoundly ecstatic and visionary states and their relatively safe applications, there should be no sound reason to deprive anyone of that direct experience. Some might also uh, worry about the potential for addiction to these substances. In actuality, the, as far as the hard data is concerned, entheogenic sessions seem to have quite the opposite effect. There has already been a number of studies illustrating that when properly administered, most of the classic psychedelics can be used as an effective treatment against addiction. LSD, mescaline, ibogaine, uh, and others have all been shown to be particularly useful. In fact, founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson, was an advocate of psychedelic substances and toward the end of his life believed that LSD could be incorporated into AA meetings and the 12 Steps. Wilson found his own sessions with psychedelics during the 1950s to be of immense psychological and spiritual benefit. He believed that such substances, when administered with care, could help individuals having issues with the more spiritual aspects of the treatment program by allowing them to reliably induce a direct experience themselves. And again, you, you can be atheist and have this. Right. So that, no, I can totally see that. Cause... And I know a lot of people that don't do 12-step type stuff because <laughs> it's... A, it, it's really heavy it's on the God. Yeah, the God it's stuff. really... I, I, I was forced to do it as a, <laughs> as a kid. Who wasn't Who wasn't an actual alcoholic. alcoholic. Anyways, I, you know, I being not a religious person, had a really hard time swallowing all the God stuff. And imagine if they were like, hey, we have a secret 13th step yeah. for someone like you. Which, I mean, <laughs> not for kids, uh, at least not in my, oh, for sure. because I wasn't an addict. But if there was, unfortunately, a child that had, um, you know, like, or little crack babies or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> Should not cut Poor that little out. crack babies. Well, someone that was like born and they just not serious is, addiction at a young age. I don't know. Thinking about Lucy and how she was helped. Exactly. If it yeah. could help someone that is that traumatized, traumatized, or... and and really actually dealing with addiction at a mm -hmm. young age, which is its own kind of trauma for a child. Absolutely. Like I can't imagine what that has to be like trying to it's hard being a kid anyway yeah. but having even more lack of a control over your emotions or your you know yeah. I, I yeah this could be very beneficial i can see that being helpful part of it i definitely had a big big problem and gotten a lot of fights with other girls because <laughs> of it so so you know uh bill ward's attempts to incorporate lsd into alcoholics anonymous uh, was unfortunately squashed, as you could imagine, by oh, yeah. a number of factors, both political and social. Another common argument against entheogenic experience is the ever-infamous bad trip. The psychological distress occasionally experienced by those taking psychedelics uh, has been shown in most cases to nonetheless have very long-term positive effects, uh, much like the experiencers of the Miracle at Marsh Chapel, like I mentioned. A lot of them had moments of psychological distress that wasn't mentioned in the in this original right. study, but still. Which is was, a bummer, because they worked through it. 
Yeah. And, and that's what needed to be said. I understand why they didn't it include of, it, but. And it was very good of uh, Doblin to mention that yes, because of that. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I understand for the time that why he didn't include it, probably mm-hmm. just to try and get the, the research to continue because mm-hmm. obviously they were being scrutinized and. Well, and they could kind of see the the end of the tunnel. Yeah, up. right. Exactly. So I can see that, but it's now it's a really valuable point. It's like you can dive deep into a deep hole and then crawl yourself out. And instead of taking months or years to do that, you can do it in like hours. Hours. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in 2012, uh, John Hopkins led a survey of approximately 2,000 people who had ingested psychedelics, which then led to bad trips, or what is perhaps better described as simply psychologically difficult periods of time. Mm-hmm. Now, although a considerable percentage of those surveyed experienced real trauma or danger from their psychedelic session, over 80% of those surveyed reported long-term benefits from their bad trip experience. A sentiment which beautifully encapsulates the concept of difficult sessions. Uh, The famous English psychiatrist Humphrey Osman once coined the phrase, uh, to fathom hell or soar angelic, just take a pinch of psychedelic. And I'm sorry, it's really no different than like any other kind of pharmaceutical. Probably 80% of people can use some type of drug Mm -hmm. and a small percentage will get horrible reactions to it you can yeah it's not it's really not any different yes some people can't take aspirin because they will have bad reactions to Mm -hmm. it so sorry you know unless unless someone's genuinely prepared for the possibility of contemplating or experiencing hell alongside the angelic the hell portion uh, even if it proves to be the fabrication of one's own mind can probably prove to be quite unnerving at times Mm mm-hmm Usually just acknowledging that it's a potential and you've got to be prepared for it is enough to help mitigate it or at least like anchor you out of it. Which is why these rules, those rules are perfect mm-hmm. and set in place, you know, so yeah. you have a goal, you have someone to help you guide you through it. You're in a safe space, you know, all of those things that just. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would like this to be used as maybe a, an educational tool in that respect, like with the proper adherence to these established variables you can often mitigate or even outright prevent difficult sessions like right. this or don't dose too high your first go around like yeah, you know yeah, ease like into it yeah approaching this thing with some rationality and um caution some kno w <laughs> yeah kno w w <laughs> <laughs> you've been forgetting that <laughs> just some proper education and planning speaking of education uh this is i'll just quickly get over uh where we go from here once we have all this information at this point, as with most controversial issues, it's just a matter of education, like we were saying. The majority of the world still finds itself under the oppressive yoke that is the war on drugs, which forces many of them to risk serious prison sentences, or even worse, for attempting to explore the potential of psychedelic substances. In America, most of the compounds which can be used entheogenically are categorized as Schedule One substances, meaning that they have absolutely no inherent medical value given the actual reasons for their illegality and the literal thousands of beneficial clinical applications described in just these two podcasts, how can anyone stand for such an egregious suppression of clearly beneficial substances? More research is obviously needed, but for those interested in theophany or religious states of consciousness, psychedelics offer a relatively safe and statistically reliable method for doing so as long as the proper variables are carefully considered and applied during a session. 
Religious institutions, philosophers, and mystics the world over would be clamoring, one would think, for the fundamental right as sovereign beings to have such an experience. As one of the researchers that spearheaded the John Hopkins study, Dr. William A. Richards best illustrated this idea in his book Sacred Knowledge. Quote, Why are university departments of religion not collaborating with colleagues who possess research skills in psychopharmacology and seeking the governmental institutional authorizations currently required to pursue studies with entheogens? Would astronomers be content to pursue research without telescopes or biologists without a microscope? Would a scholar of life in Paris be content to remain within the confines of his college library, mastering the French language and reading French novels and guidebooks without ever walking the streets of the city, speaking with the natives on the sidewalk cafes, and experiencing the glory of the cathedrals there, unquote. I mean, it could, but it'd suck. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a beautiful way of yeah, illustrating. Yeah, no, like, it is. <laughs> the, the, you have a plane ticket to France. Yeah. Yeah, and if you, you could fully you immerse yourself into this magical world that you, <laughs> and I love that. Would it, would astronomers be content without telescopes or biologists without no, microscopes? No, absolutely not. It's like the, these are the tools we have, yeah. so use them. Yeah. Why why aren't we all working together? The only way that safe access to these powerful tools has any chance of reemerging into the greater human culture is if those that have already experienced that power begin to come out of the psychedelic closet, so to speak, and advocate unapologetically for their use. As this podcast is being recorded, the current administration in America seeks to rewind the clock back to the Nixon era and reignite the war on drugs in spite of all the scientific evidence available and coming out weekly. Educated and outspoken advocacy of psychedelics must push into the ears of those with political influence and legislative power if we are to keep this entheogenic train rolling. More optimistically, there are already several religious organizations in the United States that have been granted permission by the government to utilize specific plant-based entheogens as sacraments. It is still a very long road ahead, but thankfully, we now have the benefit of our academic predecessors' work behind us, and the potential for radically positive transformation is within our collective grasp once more. Also, Failure, once more, like the 1960s, is within our grasp again. Yes. So we have to get it right this time. Many of the political and social problems in the world stem from religious or philosophical cultural differences. Given the non-specificity of entheogenic sessions, it seems likely that a multidisciplinary council of religious leaders simultaneously undergoing properly monitored psychedelic therapy has the potential to solve a good deal of the world's problems in a relatively short period of time. While this may seem like overly optimistic or wishful thinking, at the time of this podcast being recorded, there's currently a study at John Hopkins attempting to lay the groundwork for a multidisciplinary religiously-minded psychedelic therapy. The unity and universality of the mystical experience brought on by these type of sessions can very well lead to long-lasting empathy and cooperation between world religions. Wouldn't that be Um, nice? Wouldn't that be nice? Mormons, specifically, have a very vested interest in the decriminalization of psychedelic medicines. (laughs) Ironically. Ironically. The ethnobotanical and historical information highlighted in the following uh, episodes will provide a solid case that entheogenic tools were indeed utilized by the early Mormon church and most readily in its founder, Joseph Smith. Given the church's long-standing position on personal revelation and direct experience with the divine— There should be no reason that modern Mormons should feel any trepidation at exploring entheogenic states of mind in a safe and professionally monitored setting. 
Armed with just this podcast and the last, tenacious Mormons interested in mystical states uh, can seek out a safe and legal way to verify this information in a religious and spiritual context. They might just have to sacrifice their time and perhaps a little bit of their pride to do it. But yeah, that's why we should all care about this. That's where we'll end. Uh, next week, we'll get into gold plates and all the crazy shit that leads up to Mormonism. So join us next week. Find us on the Twitters and Instagrams. Don't, and... don't look for us on Twitter. You can, but we don't post anything. Someday, maybe. But uh, you can... Facebooks and Instagrams, though? Not Facebook either. Not Facebook <laughs> This is why you do that. <laughs> Just Instagram <laughs> at Mormons and Drugs Podcast. And or, or you can email us at Mormons and Drugs at, at gmail.com. And we also have a website, Mormons and Drugs.com. Just probably if you Google Mormons and Drugs, something of us will pop something up. Something of us should, although I'm pretty sure when you, when my friend did do that, she Googled Mormons and Drugs, and a lot comes up for. Uh, rehab work <laughs> oh, it is sad oh, let's change that, that. yeah like uh, we we don't want any of that like no we, we wish you guys all healthy wellness but yeah mormonsanddrugs.com should lead you to us um yeah until next week until next week thanks cody <laughs> bye, bye.